Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Creativity. Here's how to get unstuck. I'm your host, creativity coach, Nancy Norbeck. Let's go. Writer, editorial director, and publisher Michael Dolan was a math whiz before he fell in love with writing and journalism in high school. After a career in magazine publishing and working as a professional writer, he decided to start Winding Road Stories, which aims not only to publish new authors, but to help those authors build a writing career. Michael tells me about his start in publishing, how ghostwriting led to the idea for Winding Road, why he wants writers to collaborate and help each other become the best they could be, and more. Here's my conversation with Michael Dolan. Michael, welcome to Follow Your Curiosity. Thank you so much for having me. So were you a creative kid or did you discover your creative side later on? Well, I guess it depends on what your definition of being a creative kid is. I mean, I think that uh, in terms of being a kid in New York City and being creative and how you had fun before the Internet, I would say I was. (laughs) If uh, you're referring to, you know, was I creative in terms of writing and the arts? Not at all. I was a math kid until I was like. Yeah, until I was like a senior in high school was the first time I even had a germ of an idea that I wanted to be a writer. Wow. I love how you differentiate before the internet too, by the way. (laughs) It's got to give the young folks out there a a little idea of the scope of my age. Yes. Um, But yeah, there, you know, there was a time where we had to go outside and kind of create our own fun. And uh, in New York City, that was always an adventure. And uh, so there was an element of finding creative ways to amuse yourself and entertain yourself. I'm sure. True wherever you were, but I'm sure in New York, it was especially interesting. So, so a math kid. Yeah, I was a mathlete. I, I would go to other schools to compete in math. And I, up until I was a senior in high school, I thought I was going to go to engineering school. Wow. And then uh, I took a, two things happened. I took a trigonometry class and I had a really bad teacher. He was the uh, basketball coach and the driver's ed instructor and was not really (laughs) a math teacher. And so I really struggled in trigonometry and I thought, well, maybe this is just as, as, good as I get in math, like maybe I've hit my ceiling. And then, which in hindsight is silly, but now at that time it seemed that way. And then I uh, had a English teacher named Ed Schmieder, who I took uh, an AP literature class, an English literature class. And that helped me to understand these books that at first were really difficult to understand. So that was a really eye-opening experience for me. And then in my senior year, I was allowed to take a couple of electives. They let you go off the board a little bit to take something that you want to take. Mm -hmm. And he was experimenting with a journalism class that was a half semester class. And I took that and I just fell in love. I was like, this is what, this is fun. I enjoy doing this. But before that, I had no intention at all of, I didn't even know writing entailed. In some ways, I think I still don't. But like I, you know, I did not know what 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 it meant as a profession. What it meant as I just knew that the, I would open up the newspaper and I would see the same names all the time, and I just assumed, well, those people seem to be doing things they like to do, 
And so it was really not more well thought out than that. So all of the colleges that I applied to engineering school, much to my mother's dismay, I put aside and I uh, ended up going to NYU for journalism. Wow. And I want to be super clear here that I'm not at all trying to imply that there is no creativity in math. Lord knows I have had mathematicians on this show just to prove that there is. But but that's just such a fascinating and seemingly fairly sudden switch. And I'm I'm also kind of, I don't know, amused is not quite the right word, but I I was always into writing when I was a kid. And then when I was in high school, I got really interested in like problem solving and engineering and stuff, which I will freely admit was the result of watching way too much TV where the people who were doing all of that looked like they were doing really, really cool things and started out my undergrad in an arts and engineering program that I lasted in for an entire semester before I full out failed calculus. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that everybody has all of these things in them. I've never been one to believe that, oh, you're a natural at this. You're, you're, you were born to do this. I, I, you know, it might seem to come a little bit easier to some people than others, but my feeling is you tend to pursue the endeavor and bring the creativity to the endeavor that you enjoy the most. And so when you discover that you love math, you pour yourself into that. And if you discover that you enjoy words and writing, you pour yourself into that and you allow yourself the time and the runway to get better at it. I tell this to kids when I get asked to speak about writing at schools and kids will say, I'm not good at it. And I always ask them, when you play video games, which they all do, how many of you beat the game the first time? And no one raises their hands. And I said, but how many beat the game? They all raised their hands. I said, well, how long did it take you to do it? Oh, it took me a month. It took me two months. It took me three months. That's fine because you were enjoying it. So you were willing to put those three months in to get to the highest level of the game that you could possibly get to. If you don't enjoy it, after the second time you play, you're just going to put the controller down and say, I want to do this. You know? So I, I think that's true of, of everything on a grander scale. It's, if you love something, you're willing to make the mistakes and they almost don't feel like mistakes to you. They're just kind of minor bumps in the road to, until you get to where you really want to go. But if you don't like something, the first bump is like an exit ramp. You're like, <laughs> I'll get out right here. I'm out. Thank you. Yep. I see it. I see a fast food place and I'm getting out and I'm going to have something <laughs> to eat. That's such a great analogy. And it's so true. I mean, when I was teaching there, there was this whole philosophy, and I, I hope that by now it has been thoroughly debunked, but I don't know, that you couldn't teach writing, that, you know, kids were going to pick it up naturally through what they were reading or whatever. And I thought, seriously, none of us, none of us popped out on day one knowing how to write. You know, we learned it. It, it's, it's, like, it's like math, you know, you have to learn how to do math. You have to learn how to write. You have to learn how a sentence goes together and why one sentence works better than another. And, and I just, like I said, I hope that that is a, a view that has fallen out of favor by now because I just thought that was the most insane thing I'd ever heard. It's like, yeah, you pick up language naturally, but that doesn't always mean you know the best way to use it naturally. For sure. And, and sometimes early on, and I, and I'm not saying this to, to 
diminish what teachers do, but sometimes kids get bad habits because when you're in younger grades, oftentimes when you get a writing assignment, you're asked, please write one page on this, or please write two pages on this. And a lot of times, as kids are wont to do, maybe they didn't entirely read everything they were supposed to read and don't, aren't as well prepared, but they've got to fill those two pages. So they figure out a way to fill those pages any way they can to get to the end so that they can say, I've done these two pages. And as you know, as a writer, that's the worst thing you can do. You're trying to get it to be as concise as possible, not to expand it unnecessarily. So a lot of times you, you, that habit is difficult to shake. Mm -hmm. And so you see, even as adults, people who, again, aren't always well-prepared, but they have to write a report on something and they're just sort of, you know, filling the page with words that don't need to be there. And it's not the best way to go about it. So I think sometimes the, me the methods are, I understand why teachers do that because they want a child to express the ideas as fully as possible, but they're too young to really understand what that is. They just understand the goal, the binary goal, which is to fill the page. Yep. You know, there's this, there's this wonderful South Park scene where uh, Cartman is reading his paper and it's just all filler language <laughs> and it's just and, he, and he's and they just cut to him and and they would just cut to him and he would just be keep reading and it was the whole point of it was that he didn't do the you know really do the assignment and so uh and then at the end he just says and that's why simon and simon were not brothers and it's just, and it's just one of the funniest scenes ever in that tv show but it really it it was really it honed in on that point of like not being prepared and just talking you know, or just writing yeah. just to fill the space. Yeah. It's reminding me of that essay, how to say nothing in 500 words. That's been around for a while. It's out there. Yeah. I'll find it. And I'll put it in the show notes, but um, it's, it's a whole essay about how to, how to do that. That frankly, I think if you followed it and it's not intended to be followed seriously, but if you followed it, it would probably be way more work than writing the actual 500 words. Yeah. But, but, you know, you're also reminding me of like, when, when I was teaching, one of the hardest things to get a kid to do was to understand that when you put that last period on that second page or however much it was you were supposed to write, you're not done. You know, you need to go back and reread it and revise it and make it better. And they're like, but I did what I was supposed to do. You're not done. Writing is not throwing words on the page and saying that's it. There's, there's way more to it than that. And yeah, it's all about can I tick off the box that says I did this thing? I did this thing. Therefore I must be done. You know, like I did my hundred math problems. I don't have to go back and revise my hundred math problems though. If you're smart, you go back and check them and make sure you did them right. <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't translate well. It's hard, hard to get them to understand the value of going back and revising work. Well, the work is never done. Right. I, you know, I'm sure that every person that does something creative would like to fix it. Even I tell my authors this all the time. I guarantee you that Paul McCartney is sitting in his house and he'd like to have yesterday back just one more time. <laughs> like there's just something in there that annoys him and he wants to fix it. It's, it's never, it, you know, it, it really isn't done. And in, in essence, it's done when somebody reads it or consumes the art, right? That's when the art is complete is when somebody actually experiences it. But in your mind as a creative, 
it's always undone. It's always unfinished. It's always, there's something that can be done to improve it. And I think that's why so many creatives are so tortured by the process because it's like you said, it isn't a checklist. It isn't, okay, I've gotten to this point and it's completed and I move on to the next thing. You have to be able to let it go. And it's yeah. a difficult thing to do because yeah. you always feel like you can make it better. Right. You always feel like you can improve it in some way, which is, which is the joy of being a creative, that, uh, that, you know, irrational optimism of being like, I can make this better. I, I know this book sold 5 million copies, but I can make it better. Yeah. You know? Which is where you start to slide into perfectionism and making yourself crazy. I've told people, yeah. you know, it will never be done. You have to realize, you know, and acknowledge when you need to be done with it. Because there will reach, you'll reach a point where any further and you're just going to start to spiral and make yourself crazy. And that doesn't do anybody any good. So at some point you kind of have to say, this is it. I know it's not perfect. It's as good as I can get it right now. And I have to let it go and be okay with that. Because, sure. yeah. So you took this journalism class. Did you, what, what happened after that? Did you end up like joining the school paper, deciding to be a journalist? How, or did you just use it as a jumping off point? Uh, we didn't really have a school paper in high school. I don't think if we did, it was not very memorable. <laughs> um, we, I, it was my last semester at senior year. So I took journalism, uh, I, and journalism and mass communications was the major at NYU and NYU had a very broad liberal arts program. So the journalism part of my studies was only about eight classes overall. So I had a lot of classes still to take to fulfill all the liberal arts requirements. So, and they had some guidelines on what you could and couldn't take. You, usually they had sort of different categories. You had to pick one from this massive list of categories. So I took a lot of creative writing classes while I was there as well. And I was exploring that aspect of it. I was the, the actual journalism part of the curriculum really was mostly devoted to newspapers. Although as I got to my upperclassmen years, I started to focus on magazine journalism because I was really the creative writing aspect of it was burgeoning in me. And I felt like that was the way to put the two together. Magazines just gave you a little bit more room to work and express yourself. And it wasn't as rigid as writing newspaper copy was where there were really, there was a formula that in most parts of the newspaper you had to follow. Columnists had different room to work, but those were people with 30 years of experience in the business. I had zero, you know, so I was going to get, if I was lucky, I was going to write agate copy, like, you know, almost data in the, in the newspaper. So I started to kind of explore both of those things together. And then there was just sort of a random serendipity of events. My older sister, Anne, was studying fashion, and she had an internship at a women's fashion magazine called Elle, which is a French magazine that was, had just come to the United States and was, was exploding in popularity in the 80s during that supermodel culture. Yeah. And 
she decided that she did not want to study fashion anymore, so she transferred colleges and she started studying psychology. And she went into the magazine and said, you know, I'm leaving. I'm not doing this anymore, but I have a younger brother who's studying journalism. Maybe you want him to come. And I said, sure, have him come in. So I went in. And I think at that point, they just didn't want any disruption of, they just wanted somebody there. Mm-hmm. Like, cause it was a really short interview and it was almost like, when can you start? How many hours can you work? What's your schedule? You, you know, the, I, it was what I call the three eyeball interview. Like they just interview to make sure you're not crazy. <laughs> and so I passed that and they were like, great, come in on Monday and you can start. So I was a teenager at NYU and I was working in one of the biggest fashion magazines in the world, but I was working in the advertising department, not in the editorial department. So it was a weird experience because I was in the building. I was there, but I wasn't close to doing what I really wanted to do. So um, it was it was the best of times and it was the worst of times, <laughs> as an author once said. Wow, that's that's amazing that that back then you could. And, and as you say, this is maybe just the particular circumstance, but essentially have your sister say, I'm going, but have her just my younger brother and just. Yeah, OK, and, come on. In. And she got the internship out of an ad in The Times. Wow. Like a classified ad. Yeah. Like that just, it wouldn't, you can't copy my path at all. <laughs> uh, so, sorry, folks out there who are trying to get in the book business. They do not use me as a, a model. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a strange thing that, that it all kind of happened that way. And, and it was a blessing and it was a curse because I was working in the advertising department. And once you st- start to get on that track, it's very difficult to get off. Mm-hmm. it's, you know, you are looked at, uh, if you're in advertising, you're looked at by the editorial people as the bad guy. You're mm-hmm. the suit. You're the business guy. Yeah. You're the guy that doesn't want us to, you know, you're trying to cut our budget and you don't want us to do what we want to do. And all. so it brought a real skepticism in terms of what I could offer in value to the editorial department. And the editorial people there were exceedingly nice to me they were very nice but it was no one wanted to sort of take that gamble and be like you know we'll we'll give him a chance that that just never quite happened so uh what ended up happening was my the salesperson that i worked for went left and went to work at condé nast and she called me about a month later and said, my assistant is crazy. I want to fire her and I want to hire you to come over and I'll get you a raise and you'll be happier here. Cause she knew at that point, like I, just to take a step back. Mm-hmm. So I was interning until school was over. And then when school had ended, I just started showing up every day, full time without telling anybody <laughs> and just billing you know, 40 hours a week. And that, so I was able to do that for maybe six months or so. And then I guess when the budget came around, they're like, this, this kid makes a lot of money. And so they called me in, like the bosses called me in. And I said, how many hours do you work here? And I said, you know, being the New Yorker I was, I, I said, you know, I come in when you need me and you need me every day. So I'm here every day, you know, eight hours a day. And they were like, well, listen, you got to take a job or you have to leave. 
So they ended up hiring me as a sales assistant and I was working for two salespeople. So now with that, one salesperson goes, they go to work at a magazine called House and Garden. I knew nothing about houses or gardens at that point, <laughs> but she was like, I want you to come over and work with me. And I was like, look, I'm really trying to get into editorial. I can't, this is, this is a step in the wrong direction for me. I appreciate it. She said, well, if you come over for a year, I'll help you get an editorial job here. So that was the deal. So I said, okay, with that in mind as sort of a guarantee, I will put in a, another year of penance and I will go work <laughs> in the editorial department. I was there for nine months and the magazine folded. So it was the magazine had been around for a hundred years and Cy Newhouse himself came down and told me and my colleagues, this magazine no longer exists. So you get sent to human resources and you're, they ask you, you know, what do you want to do? And they're trying to place everybody mm -hmm. as best as they can. I said, well, I, I really want to work in editorial. And the woman literally laughed out loud. And she said, you know, there's an, I have to place an entire editorial department. Like you are not very high on that list. And she said, but there's a men's magazine. There's a men's rock and roll fashion magazine here called details. And if it's ever going to happen for you in this company, that's where it's going to happen. So if you want, you can go interview there. And the, the woman who uh, I was going to work for as her assistant had worked at house and garden. So she knew me. And um, I, I ended up going there and they ended up hiring me. And it was, it set my career farther off in terms of what I was trying to do. But um, Gina Sanders, the woman I worked for, became a mentor for my lifetime and was just so incredibly kind and generous to me. And then about two years later, an editorial job opened up and uh, she campaigned for me. And because I was still advertising, I was still kind of radioactive as far as the editorial department was concerned. And they gave me a chance. And I started over at 25 or 26. I was an editorial assistant. My salary cut in half. Um, just all my responsibility gone. I was back to doing expense reports for people and various sort of administrative duties. But I wanted to do it so badly, no one was going to talk me out of it. Mm -hmm. No, you know what I mean? I was like, I'm here. I'm not, I'm not leaving the room. I I'm here. So yeah. they, they just, uh, humored me and, and I went to work for just the most amazing staff of editorial people and brilliant minds, many of whom are still my friends to this day, over 25 years later. And so I had to take that step backwards to go forward, but I was, I, wanted to do it so badly, it wasn't even a thought of not doing it. Well, and I think that's such a, a good point that people don't, they either forget or they never realize it in the first place that sometimes, you know, it's not a linear path. It's worth taking the pay cut. It's worth being willing to start over doing something new if that's what you really want to do. And that's what you need to do to get there. And, you know, we get locked into this idea that everything has to be, you know, that it's a ladder rather than, you know, a hiking trail. So everything has to go straight up when actually you're probably going to meander around for a while and there will be this place that's a little bit higher than that place. And then you'll land, you know, somewhere in the middle and 
and then then maybe you find the ladder or you start climbing the hill but it doesn't always it doesn't always go in a straight line i think most things in life actually don't always go in a straight line it's really hard because the opportunities are never in a straight line yeah you know, my when i was deciding where to go to school my mother was really trying to push me to go to business school um and in some ways she probably was right she was just thought it was a more stable job and a more stable income and what have you and so i went to talk to my dad and i said dad what should i do i said i'll do what you want me to do just tell me what you think i what's the best thing to do and he gave me the best advice i've ever gotten in my life he said whatever it is that you decide to do just make sure you love it because you're going to be doing it for the rest of your life and that was it. And so once he told me that, that gave me the freedom to make all of these decisions because he was right. If you're going to be doing this, you, what price do you put on happiness? What price do yeah. you put on contentment? And so you, I kind of use that as my spiritual guide whenever I make decisions, because if it's going to make me happy, chances are I have a better chance of succeeding at it than if I'm unhappy. Right. Right. I think we forget that too. We think that as long as you work really hard and push yourself and, you know, possibly even go to the point of making yourself sick doing it, you'll be okay and you'll be successful. But I think that your odds go up a whole lot if you actually want to be doing that thing. You know, there's, there's so I, much drive and enthusiasm that comes with that that doesn't come with, I just have to get through one more report. Yeah. I talk to authors all the time who, just want to make enough money from their books to quit their jobs, mm -hmm. you know, and it's partly because they love writing, partly because they don't like their jobs, but there is that sense of this is not where I want to be. And I'm trying to find a way to where I want to be. Right. Right. Absolutely. So how long did you stay at Condé Nast? I was there until... I was there for, for about five years, and then the magazine had gone through a lot of changes. I had been through five editors-in-chief in five years, which is a lot. Because yeah. every time somebody else would come in, they would completely change the mission and redesign the magazine. And, and I, I, by that time, I had reached the kind of limit of what I felt I could do. And a lot of people did. And a lot of the people that I sort of come of age with at the company left to go do other things. And I, I just knew it was time. And I didn't really know what I was going to do, to be honest with you. I just knew it, it wasn't happening for me there. You know, I, I hadn't progressed at the speed and the, the uh, responsibility that I had hoped. And so I, and, but the, they, they were losing people and they were desperate to keep me. And so not because I, they particularly thought that I was uh, an irreplaceable asset, but they needed people to put the magazine out. Mm -hmm. And so they, I walked into um, uh, Bill Shapiro, who's still a dear friend, walked into his office and he said, before you, he knew I was going to quit. I didn't say a <laughs> word. He said, before you say anything, I just want to know, I just want to let you know, we were offering you a promotion and a raise. And, and I was like, it's, it's time. I have to go. And so he's like, well, what, what could we do? And I said, well, look, I really want to write. I've never been able to just be a writer. I've always been an editor. I've always been working on other things here. I've never had a chance to do my own thing. 
And he said, well, if we put you on contract as a writer, would that be of interest to you? And I was like, sure, that would definitely be of interest to me. And so they hired me as a writer and I didn't have to be in the office. I could work remotely and I could work on a, a variety of different things. I didn't have to work on one specific section of the magazine. And then, so in some ways, like, I, you know, they, I was ready to leave and they made my dream come true. They, they <laughs> put me under contract for a year to be a writer. And so I had a year to see if this would work or not, if I had the ability to do this for a living. And it was a wonderful opportunity until four months later, the magazine closed. Oh, no. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, but there's a silver lining in this. So I had a contract for a year and the magazine closed in four months. So I could no longer contribute to the magazine. So I went to one of my friends who was a lawyer and I said, can you look at my contract? Because does this mean that they're not paying me anymore? And he looked at it. He said, no, the, the, your contracts with the parent company. So, and they still exist. So they still have to pay you. They have to pay out your contract. So it, it was a blessing because I had eight months where I was paid to freelance. Like I could go and pitch stories to other places and try to get my name out there and try to get assignments. And, and it, and I did, and it was the, some of the best months of my life. And that's really where I had a breakthrough as a writer because I had that opportunity. So I started to get stories in New York magazine and wired and popular science. And, and all of a sudden, just like that, I was a professional writer, you know, and, and not much had changed other than that. I had the resources to be able to do this without having to worry about, well, I don't have any assignments. So how am I going to pay my bills this mm -hmm. month? Right. That's the problem that everybody has. It's like, you know, when you're a freelance writer, every month you start at zero and you have to figure out how am I going to get to the amount of money I need to live to pay my right. bills and stuff like that. So my contract for those eight months gave me the runway to start to get assignments. And once I started to do that and get the confidence that I could do it, when the contract ran out, I was doing it. I was working. I was, you know, I was doing everything that, that I had wanted to do. This is amazing. This is one of these stories that I love where it's like everything falls into place in just the way that needs to fall into place, even if it doesn't look like that at the time, so that you can end up where you're supposed to be. I think, you know, I, my mom and dad used to say things happen for a reason. I, I think my caveat to that is things happen and then you kind of figure out what the reason was. And so even so with that, I had gone through that experience and I was writing full time. And then here in New York, 9-11 happened. And then so all of the freelance work dried up immediately because nobody knew what was happening next and nobody knew what was going to happen to the economy. Nobody knew what the next steps were. And so I was going from making close to six figures as a writer to hardly making anything. And it was a really difficult time. And I had to figure out how, how is this going to work going forward? And so I ended up going back to work in, as an editor and having a full-time job. And, and that has been kind of like the pattern of, of, of things is that you are working on something, the industry changes or the, or the world changes, and then you have to switch and toggle to something else and use your skills differently where you can have more economic stability. And you do that for a while. And then if you build enough economic stability, 
you can go back to doing things the way you want to do it. And then the world changes again. You got to go back to the way corporate America wants you to do it. And you just go. And so that's kind of been my career is just, you know, flopping back and forth between having the autonomy and independence to do the work that I really enjoy doing and kind of creating a, a, a professional life for myself versus kind of fitting into a, a corporate structure where there was more stability, but my ability to do what I want to do is fairly limited by the mission of the company I was working for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's such a kind of a, a knife edge to, you know, navigate which side you're on at any given moment, which side is the place that you need to be. You need to be where you, where you can pay your bill. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I don't think that that changes for anybody. So I think that, you know, or, or you need health insurance or you need, I mean, there's, there's a lot of real world, you know, I, I think that a lot of times when we talk about writing, it's just right. And just, it's like, yeah, but I, I have to have, I have a family. I have right. people to provide for. I have, uh, you know, debt I have. So there's a lot of real variables that enter into the equation. And so you're, it's a constant recalibration of what you can do versus um what you have to do and that i think i've been fortunate enough to meet so many wonderful authors that some of the most talented people in the world and they go through this all the time they teach you know a lot of them are professors at university uh, a lot of them do other types of writing jobs copywriting they write these beautiful books that people love and are willing to spend money on, but still it's not enough. They need to find other ways kind of make the dream work. And that's, that just goes back to the idea of if you really love it, you'll figure out a way how to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think, and this is something that has definitely come up on the show before, but when you were talking about the authors who just want to make enough to quit their job, so many people have this idea that they're going to become an author and they're going to be, you know, a Neil Gaiman or somebody else who makes a ton of money at it and can quit their job and live super comfortably and jet around the world. And that is just not true for most, most authors. It's not true for 99 and a half percent of authors. Yeah. It just, and it gets harder every day. The, the brutal business of publishing gets harder and harder every day. So yeah, it's it's very challenging. And I think even the authors that have had that success would still tell you they're not quite sure how they got there. That there was there was a, a, they're undeniably talented. You you can't deny people like Stephen King and Neil Gaiman are extraordinarily talented people and they work supremely hard every day at this. They do not take it for granted. But still, there's an element of serendipity that their work has found so many people. You know, there's a lot of great books out there that people, millions of people don't know about. And right. so it's it's a very, there's an alchemy to it that no one really, if everybody knew how to do it, they would do it. But yeah. and so I think that, you know, those people would be the first to tell you that they're very lucky. Mm -hmm. Not lucky in the sense that they don't have the ability. They certainly have the ability. But I think they would tell you that other people have the ability too, and they they would have, probably have a difficult time explaining to you why them versus right. another really talented author. You know, I, I think they would they would all have, even though they're very supremely confident in their skill, I think they would have the humility to share that they still don't quite understand the bolt of lightning that allowed them to have that level right. of success. Right. 
And I think all sorts of things go into that. You know, both of them were writing when there was only traditional publishing and there wasn't, you know, publishing was not in the state that it is in now where you can publish yourself, you can, you know, try to go traditional, but it's not, it doesn't work the same way that it did 20 or 30 years ago. And that, that certainly is a factor as much as the bolt of lightning, I suspect. But there's also people always find a new way to do it. Mm -hmm. People always find a different way to find, to catch that lightning in a bottle, right? You look at people like Lee Bardugo, you look at people like Colleen Hoover, and, and these were people that did not necessarily come from traditional publishing uh, backgrounds, but they, they worked extremely hard. They created work that people really feel emotionally attached to, and they found ways, unique ways to connect with their audience. And again, like, I think they would be the first to tell you, they don't know why it was them, but they're happy that it was. And, and they've worked really hard to maintain that. And so there's a lot of variables. I think there's like, they may not be able to tell you why it happened for them, but they check all the boxes for someone who it should happen to. Mm. You know, they, they are very prolific. They work really hard. They produce a lot of work. Um, they are very understanding of their audiences and what their audiences want. And they are able to create work that fulfills that relationship. And I think that, um, you know, there may be other people out there that are doing it, but they found a way, I think with Colleen, it was through TikTok, you know, with Lee, I think it was not quite as linear as that, but they found ways to build a community around their work. And that community grew and grew and grew exponentially in ways they couldn't have dreamed of, but it's happened. So even though the the model, the publishing model changes, people change with it, both on the author side and on the reader side. And it's, it's always up to us as creatives to not accept defeat, you know, and not just be like, uh, it's not what it used to be, you know, no, but that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity. It's not a, it's not a downfall. It's an opportunity. It's, it's, it's easier now in some ways because you're not beholden by somebody making a decision for you. Right. So, you know, it's, it's things happen. It's how you react to those things that determines, you know, whether that event was a pivotal moment in your life and, and something that lifted you or was it a moment of despair that brought you down? It's kind of how you react to it determines that. Yeah, I think that's very true, too. Yeah. So how did you end up making the switch from freelancing into books? Well, I, um, after working in magazines for a number of years, I had my own magazine called Athletes Quarterly that was for professional athletes. And that was a lot of fun. And I did that for a few years. And then it really got to the point where it just wasn't feasible anymore. The cost of making magazines became too high. The internet costs were too cheap. And um, the advertising model for what I had created didn't work anymore online. It only worked in the print form. So I started ghostwriting books for other people. And uh, I went to work, 
I was working with this agency that was sort of a matchmaker for people who wanted to do books but didn't have writing ability, and they would connect them with a, a ghostwriter to mostly do memoirs, but sometimes it would be business books. It depended on what project was. And so I would work on these books for, you know, sometimes six months or eight months. And it was really rewarding to, you know, when somebody trusts you with their life story, it's obviously the most important thing to them. And so, uh, you know, for them to have trust in you to help them tell their story was really kind of a unique experience. And it was a lot of fun. And what would happen is the book would be done and the agency, that would be it. They, you know, unless you, unless you as the client paid a lot more money, they just kind of said, okay, good luck with your book. And but, so these people would be like, Hey man, I don't know what to do. Like, what do I have to do? I have to get an agent now. What happens next? And they didn't really know what to do. And so I would try to help them as best as I could. And it came to my, uh, realization that I wonder if there's a lot of people out there, maybe not like this, that didn't have any writing experience, but I wonder if there are people out there that did write books, good books, but just did not know how to navigate the world. And so they just gave up and shelved it and said, you know, maybe it just wasn't meant to be. So I started uh, Winding Road Stories uh, my friend Rodney, who who is one of the best entrepreneurs I know, he had just sold his company uh, and was looking to invest in some things. And he happened to call me right when all this was happening. And I said, this is what I'm doing. And, and so we launched Winding Road together. And we opened the doors. And sure enough, manuscripts started to come in that were really good. That just for whatever reason, maybe it was because the person got frustrated. Maybe it was because... They didn't submit as much as they should have. Maybe it was because agents have so much material. They could say it was easy for them to say no that's to stuff that wasn't perfect. You know what I mean? So there was a lot of different variables that went into these things not taking off. But we started to find material. We started to find good material. We started to work with authors. And in uh, November 2021, we put our first book out and now it's June of 2023. And as of Tuesday, we'll have our 20th book. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it all went really fast. Yeah. Yeah. You clearly hit on something. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a lot of great material out there. And um, what we wanted to do is we wanted to, we were trying to take a longer term approach to it. I think that in in the book business, a lot of attention is in the short term because it's it's they're publicly traded companies. They, you know, the bottom line is everything and they need to make money now. And all these books need to make money now. And um, you know, you'll hear these things like, well, there's there's a couple of big there's a couple of books that are hits and they pay for everything else. That may be true, but that's not how they go into it. They go into it, they want every book to make money, as do I, right? So, but I, my feeling was I wanted to help an author with their career. So my goal was, I know you're a debut author and your first book isn't going to make a million dollars most likely, but if you start to create a body of work and you start to build a community around your work, 
you will be profitable. You will make money. These books will, you know, how much they make is up to a lot of variables, including the author and how much they're willing to promote the work and market the work and put their energy behind that. And so we started trying to help authors more with their careers in addition to their books. And I think we've, we're starting to see that in the sense that we've had an, a number of those authors that began with us are now publishing their second books. And then the, the second wave of authors that came are working on their second books. And so I think we, thus far, we've sort of accomplished what we've set out to do um, in terms of helping writers kind of visualize the trajectory of their writing careers and whether or not they could be successful. And I think it remains to be seen, you know, if we do are able to have that giant hit that, you know, demonstrates the kind of viability of the model. Um, but I do think that we're on our way there. There's a number of our books that people are want to talk about film rights and screen rights and things of that nature. And, you know, that's kind of partly what we set out to do. And so, you know, it, it I think that I'm very proud of the work that the authors have done. I'm very proud of the work that um, Vanessa Lenong, my, my partner in crime in this, she edits all the YA and romance books have done um, and as an author herself. And I, I'm, I'm proud of the culture we've created with the company. I love this idea because it's, you know, there are so many stories of getting a book published and then basically the publisher just kind of says, well, the rest of it's on you and throws you to the wolves. And, you know, most authors don't know how to market a book. They don't know how to promote something and they'd rather be writing the second one. So helping them figure that out is a phenomenal idea. Well, we, we get into this because we're not business people, right? I mean, we could all be making a lot more money doing other things. So you do this because you like to do it. And so it doesn't come natural for many of us. It, it's not natural for many of us to talk about ourselves. You know, it's not natural for us to, to promote our work. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's kind of not, it, it just doesn't feel natural to us. Yeah. A so lot of us were raised to believe that we shouldn't talk about ourselves. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to do. Um, but the business is, you know, when I was growing up in publishing, um, the book business was very much like the magazine business. In the magazine business, we would print, I worked in magazines where we would print 5 million copies of a magazine. It's an extraordinary number of magazines. And we do that every month. And if we sold 35% of those magazines, they'd have a parade for us. That was a big month for us, Right. The other 65% went in the landfill. Like they did not, you know, and when you think about it now in hindsight, it's a terrible business model to be throwing out 65% right. of what you create. Books were very similar. The book company would sort of guess what they thought would sell and they would have a printing with that number of copies of books and they would distribute it everywhere they could. And if it sold well, they would do a second printing or maybe a third printing or maybe a fourth printing. And when it got to the point where the books were now on the shelf and couldn't sell anymore, the bookstores would tell the publisher, that's it. We can't sell them anymore. You can take them back or we can put them in a remainder bin, whatever it is. And that would be the end of it. And the book would be taken out of print. Now with print on demand, your book's never out of print. So there is no inventory. Your book can be in 
for sale for your unborn grandkids can be making royalties off your books, right? So you you have to treat it that way. You have to treat it a little bit more like intellectual property and a little bit less like a a physical inventory book because it's not anymore. It's 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 much more than that. And so you can sell your books as long as you the author are willing to market them. Right? And so that's a, a different world that we live in now. And I think some authors understand that very well. And some authors still haven't quite grasped the concept yet, right? Even with their out-of-print books. It's like, well, I did this book, but it's out of print. It's like, according to who? You know, you can pull that book back and, and put it in print yourself if you want. Like, so there's 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 new opportunities here. And it's really kind of up to you in terms of how much you're willing to do the marketing and the promotion. How much are you willing to learn to do the marketing and the promotion? How much are you willing to try things and fail at them and to find the right road of success in them? And so that's that's the part that's a learning curve for everybody, including me. Like we try things all the time and sometimes things work really well and sometimes they don't. But you don't know until you do it. So it's just encouraging them to kind of have that beginner's mind and that that sort of childhood curiosity to be like, all right, I'll try this and, you know, we'll see if it works or not. Yeah. And it's that willingness to fail that I think people also get hung up on, you know, because we're always told that failure is bad, but failure is also often the best way to learn something. I think, I mean, I feel like, you see a lot now in business um, stories about how failing is good. I I I I prefer not to fail, <laughs> but um, but I but I think you can't be afraid of it. I think you can't be afraid of of something not working, and especially if you're a writer and you're so used to rejection to begin with. Rejection is just a daily part of our life. If you're used to that, it's really kind of the same thing. Like once you have a bit of a thicker skin and be like, okay, that's not for this group of people, you it gets easier to try things and and not have them work and be able to move on quickly to the next thing. You know, it, it's when you're afraid to experience that rejection is really when you you don't try and you kind of hide with your book, and that almost never works. Yeah, it really doesn't. You know, yeah, it's hard for people to find you if you're hiding. <laughs> yes, especially if you're an author, because yes. you're ready. You're hiding already to a certain extent, right? But yeah, it's much harder when you're hiding as an author. Yeah, definitely. So I want to make sure that we get a chance to talk about the collaborative things that you're doing because I'm fascinated by the idea of writing collaboratively, and I want to hear more about what that means in your world, what that looks like and how it, how you got there. I know you mentioned the Beatles documentary was at least part of, of that. Yeah. I'm still obsessed with that. It's been two years and I'm still obsessed with that. I, I mean, I, I, you know, for, for people who are listening, the, the, the get back documentary, which is on Disney, I would highly recommend everybody watch because it's, it's nine hours, but I wish it was 90 hours. It, it's a really intimate look at the biggest band in the world at the peak of their success. And it's a fascinating look at their creative process. 
And there's one scene, you know, these were guys that were dependent upon each other to succeed. And they had gotten to a point in their careers where they were now hugely famous and had the autonomy to do whatever they wanted to do. And you could see that struggle in this documentary, like Paul McCartney and John Lennon and George Harrison and Ringo Starr are all massively successful. Ringo starring in a movie, Paul's working on an album, John's doing his own, like they can do whatever they want at that point creatively, but they still kind of knew that they needed each other in some way. And so they're working on this album and they're showing up. And at times they're not even talking to each other, but they are still showing up in this studio and they are still working and they are still creating things. And there's a beautiful scene where Ringo comes in and he's like, I got this idea for a song. And he starts banging away at the piano. The first kind of notes of Octopus's Garden that you could recognize, right? And now it's pretty intimidating when you're in a band with three of the greatest songwriters in American history or, or world history. They're British, but, um, you know, three, three of the greatest songwriters in the world. You're, you're the fourth guy in this band and you're like, Hey, I've got a song. Right. And so that's intimidating enough as it is, but then like something wonderful happens. Like George comes over with his guitar and he starts playing with them and he starts trying to figure it out with him. And so they're kind of conspiring together now to get the song closer to what it needs to be before Paul and John show up. And so they're playing and they're, and they're, and they're kind of it's coming together a little bit, you know. And then John walks in and he says, well, Ringo, what, what's my job on this? And he said, well, you can play the drums. It's okay. And he gets a cigarette and he sits and he starts playing the drums on the song. And then Paul walks in with a watching everything that's going on and has a huge smile on his face. And it, that whole movie to me, it was fascinating about how these guys that could do whatever they want, still wanted to collaborate in the, you know, in the biggest possible way. They just wanted to make each other better. And they just wanted to work on stuff and make it better and more interesting. And I was so envious as a writer because I feel like bands have that. And writers don't, right? We go in a room by ourselves and we plot away on the keyboards. And then it's, you know, if you're really fortunate, you have people that you trust that you can share your work with. And, um, and in some ways that's a collaboration, but you never really sit in a room together right? and try to create something together that's special. And so I don't know where that's going to go, like, but I'm f- endlessly fascinated by it. I've started a writing group here in New York. The New, I'm part of the New York Writers Circle, which existed before I before me, but I've taken part of that and created a writing group around it. And um, I'm continuing to try to find ways where writers can collaborate together on things. It exists in some places, like in television, you'll have a writer's room where people will collaborate on something, but it doesn't really exist in books yet. And I, I'm still trying to figure out how do you replicate that experience where you can all be in a room together working on something and just the joy that it brings when it comes together the way it did in that documentary. That is so interesting. It's reminding me of, you know, 
being with my friends in my MFA program, when we would have, I did a low residency program. So we were only together for about a week and we would have these short assignments because it was only a week where, you know, one of them that I remember was, you know, write a story that has no conflict. And we were all mm-hmm. like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> you know, so, so we're like sitting around the table at lunch going, how are you writing a story that has no conflict? Which is not exactly what you're talking about, but we were still just sort of like, how does this work? How does it, how can you do this? What, what makes sense and what doesn't make sense? So I guess it, it, it isn't a totally alien concept to me. Like I originally thought that it was because I had not thought about that for a while, but but yeah, I love I love that image, and I will admit I have not yet watched Get Back, but I need to. It's on my list, and I'm now it's envious. On my list. <laughs> I'm envious to, that you can watch it and feel it for the first time. I no, I my very first journalism class, I had an adjunct professor who named Mickey Carroll. He was the best professor I ever had. I learned more in that class than I did in the rest of my NYU uh, academic career combined. And the first day we had an assignment. We're all sitting there working on the assignment. And he said, you know, if you get stuck, get up and look and see what other people are doing. And I was like, what? Like, you want me to look at other people's work? Like, we're getting graded on this, right? Like, you're so <laughs> ingrained in the academic, like, you do yours. And, they, and he was like, yeah, because if you're in a newsroom, that's what you do. You ask for help and you go and you, you know. And it was such an extraordinary lesson. And why you hated him as a professor. <laughs> but, like, he was the best professor I ever had. Because it was that sort of collaboration. And, and in magazines, I was very blessed to have that because we were all writers. We worked with writers. So you did have that element of sitting around and talking about things. I mean, we, it maybe didn't necessarily, we weren't sitting there actively writing, but we would talk about stories and how to develop a story and what, what was important and what the theme was. And, and so there was that collaboration amongst creative minds. And when you get into books, it's it's far more isolated, mm-hmm. you know, I'm fascinated. I know people who, who write and who never talk to their editor. It's all a hundred percent through email. And I'm just blown away by that. Like, I just can't even fathom what it would be like to work on something and not have a spoken word between me and, and my author. You know, it just doesn't make sense to me. It just feels too rigid and, and exclusionary, but I guess it works for some people. I I just, it would not work for me at all. That is really interesting. Cause you know, you're already so isolated and email feels it's, it's contact with the outside world, but it's not in the same way. It it feels much more isolated and, and it's not in, in real time. So you can't kind of respond to the idea that's in the email in that same way and say, but what do you think about this? And, and have an actual, I mean, you can, email is a conversation, but it's not, not the same kind. I, I don't think it's a conversation. <laughs> I, to me, I, I, I almost feel like I'm talking at people and mm-hmm. talking with people, right? Because you say something and then, you know, at some determined amount of length of time later, they say something back and you're both, Counting on understanding each other's tone, understanding each other's right. meaning, you know, and uh, so uh, you're assuming a lot of things as e- emails going back and forth. And there are a lot of things that are unsaid, right? With going to your point, like because you're not conversing, you know, there, there might be something that you would add on that would clarify something or take the conversation in a better direction, but that never happens. You don't allow it to happen. So it's, it's a challenge to do it that way, I think. 
but I understand a lot of times editors are under immense amount of time pressures. It's easy just to send, here's, here's the changes, take a look, let me know if you have any questions and that's off my plate, you know? Mm-hmm. And, but that's not, to me, collaboration is, is, uh, you know, we talk and we come up with a common ground, right? Collaboration isn't, I tell you what to do, right. nor is collaboration. You tell me what to do. And I think sometimes in email, that's kind of what the default setting is. I need you to do this. Okay. I have done this. Now I need you to do that. Okay. I've done this. And it's so it's, there's not that sense of kind of finding that mystical place where you both get what you want. Right. And so that I don't, I think it's much harder to achieve via email and the editing process than it is if you're talking to people. Yeah. That makes much more sense, you know, because just going back again to that, that image of, octopus's garden coming together i mean how how would you have done that over email you couldn't have you it would have been something very different Mm -hmm. you know it just would have been something very different i look just the fact that it's on the album is a collaborative process right i mean it's not the greatest beatles song but it was important to them that ringo had this creative outlet where he there was something that he created and he sang and he participated and that's the, 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 the love they had for one another, you know, that Paul would come in and, and would write something. And be, oh, I wrote something that Ringo could sing. You know what I mean? And like he, they were always trying to help each other be better artists. And I, that to me, like, is what I'm striving for. And right. Like I want to have a group of writers that want each other to get better and are selfless in trying to get that. And you can still have a massive ego about your own work, but it doesn't mean that you don't want to help other people get better too right. and, and be part of that process and participation. And it's so rewarding. It's so rewarding when you help someone else. It, one of the most rewarding things for me, this whole thing is to see people's dreams come true and their books to be in bookstores. It's like they've been dreaming of this since they were a kid. They always wanted to be an author and there's their book in Barnes yeah. and Noble. And like to be part of that is just a gift. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm very curious to see where this ends up going because I think you could be opening up lots of interesting new doors for lots of people. I'm curious too. I bet. (laughs) (laughs) I bet. Well, keep us posted for sure. Most definitely. I, I appreciate the opportunity. I hope this was helpful for folks. That's our show for this week. Thanks so much to my guest, Michael Dolan, and to you. Please leave a review for this episode. There is a link right in your podcast app. And in it, tell us about a collaboration that made a difference to you. If you enjoyed our conversation, I hope you'll share it with a friend. Thanks so much. If this episode resonated with you, don't forget to get in touch on any of my social platforms or even via email at nancy at fycuriosity.com tell me what you loved. And if you're feeling a little bit less than confident in your creative process right now, and you haven't yet signed up for my free email series on six of the most common creative beliefs that are messing you up, please check it out. It'll untangle those myths and help you get rolling again. You can find it at fycuriosity.com. And there's also a link right in your podcast app. See you there and see you next week. 
Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. Thanks. Thanks.